I'm Jewish. I'm so Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. A lot of people say, I'm Jewish, I'm proud of being Jewish. First thing I ask them is, why? I'm Jewish. Make something of it. Okay, we're back with Rabbi Reinman, and I start this segment off with a question about why we care so much when secular Jews do something openly Jewish, such as Sandy Koufax, who didn't play on Yom Kippur. What he did, that he, and Sandy Koufax did not pitch on Yom Kippur. Very nice. Uh, in the Torah, uh, Shabbos is more important than Yom Kippur. It's a greater sin to desecrate Shabbos than to desecrate Yom Kippur. So on Shabbos he pitched, on Yom Kippur he didn't pitch. So as far as halacha, as far as Judaism is concerned, what he did was, you know, not consistent. But at the same time, what he was doing was making a public statement about uh, Judaism and it honored Judaism, it did. So I think that's, uh, that's good. It was a public statement, it's like Begin walking into to the UN and putting on a yarmulke. Okay, very nice. It's good, it's nice. It shows respect for Judaism. So, respect is good. I don't think the Orthodox need that so much. I, I, think, I think that non-Orthodox are much more excited by something like Sandy Koufax not pitching on Yom Kippur than the Orthodox are, because the Orthodox are you know, they're comfortable in their skin as Jews. You know, this is their life. This has been the life of our ancestors for thousands of years. This is the way we live, and everything is good. Now, if he, if he does this publicly, okay, I'm not saying it's nothing, but it doesn't, it, doesn't make us feel, it doesn't make us feel more secure as Jews just because Sandy Koufax didn't pitch in Yom Kippur. But, if, but if, you're, if you're a Jew, and all you do is you go to shul once a year on Yom Kippur, and you basically do nothing, and you feel like, okay, so like, what's the big deal about being a Jew? And then somebody gets up and makes this public demonstration of not pitching Yom Kippur because he's Jewish. It makes you feel good. But it, it means more to them. This brings up modern Orthodox thing, because I was actually talking to two modern Orthodox guys, and they went to Harvard, and apparently at Harvard there's this actress uh, she was born in Israel, and she, now she's kind of a uh, Portman, Natalie Portman. Yeah, I heard the name. Yeah. She uh, she made a she wrote a little brief little response to the Harvard newspaper, and and uh, replied to their anti-Israel article. It just, it just so gave, who wrote it then for Israel? Somebody in the Harvard press yeah. wrote anti-Israel. She replied back and said, "No, it's not. You have it all wrong, and and this is not morally equivalent, or something of that nature." Very brief little response, and said the Jewish community at Harvard was so thrilled. I mean, that was. So maybe that's a different issue. That, but even they said Sandy Koufax, they got a real thrill on Sandy Koufax. Is it so the modern Orthodox is different than the Orthodox? Well, the modern Orthodox basically is... Um, it's, it's, it's a form of Orthodoxy. I would not say that it's a different stream. Now, getting back to what we were speaking about before, as far as the fundamental concepts of Judaism are concerned, the idea of revelation, the idea of the covenant, the idea of, of halacha being supreme, uh, the modern Orthodox are are same same page with the rest of Orthodoxy. Uh, modern Orthodox may be more inclined to go into professional life. Modern Orthodox may be more inclined to seek leniencies in the halacha than than people that are uh, not modern Orthodox. 
but I, I wouldn't like to draw any, any sharp distinctions because, you know, I think it's all internal and it's, it's, not, it's not a great issue. The, there was a conservative rabbi who said that the Orthodox need to, he grew up conservative, he grew up Orthodox, but he said the Orthodox need to be told exactly what to do. That's what they like. They don't like to have a lot of freedom. But I know you can respond to that. Um, it's true that you know all, all 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 societies, all people need to live by rules. You can't live without rules. Orthodoxy, the Torah, Judaism, sets down a very clear set of rules by which a person is supposed to live Jewishly and the way to conduct the relationship with other people, the way to conduct the relationship with God. Um, these rules are immutable. They are, I mean, there are, I won't say there, you can't, you can't change the basic rules, but within the rules, of course, there are many, many different views and different opinions of the application of the rules. But these rules are, you know, if... A person who's orthodox goes out into the world, into the business world. Does he want people to make uh, decisions for him? Does he make his own decisions? A person who wants to know where to live, what, to, what kind of a car to drive, what to, where to send his children, all these things, people, people are free to make their own decisions. But the freedom that, that, that the non-Orthodox are talking about are not just, they want to be free of God. They don't want God to interfere in their lives. This is the way I want to live. This is what I want to do. On, on Shabbos, I want to go watch the Yankees. I want to go to this restaurant. I want to go to that restaurant. I want to eat this food. I want to do that. And don't tell me what to do. That is, that is rebelliousness. That's not freedom. But if you follow the rules and, and you're not rebellious and you conduct your relationship as you're supposed to, and then you can do anything that you want. You could live where you want. You could do what you want. You could follow any profession that you want. You could marry anyone you want. You could do whatever you want. You're free. But don't be rebellious. Just be free. So why do you think the reform is the biggest movement? Why is the biggest movement? Why reform? Reform, Re Re reform, reform is, is very large, and I think it's growing. And my understanding that it's growing is because their uh, acceptance of converts and non-Jews into their uh, membership roles. I don't think that, uh, that it's growing from within. I think there's a tremendous amount of intermarriage. And in the case of an intermarriage, uh, the reform is, is very accepting. So, so, the, uh, so either they convert or they don't convert. So these people feel comfortable with the, any kind of affiliation, to have reform affiliation. But they don't show up. You know, you go on a regular Shabbos in a reform temple, which may have a seating capacity of 3,000, and you'll be lucky if you find 100 people. So does that mean that they're growing? Just because, you know, you have, you have 3,000 people paying membership and showing up once a year, but, you know, regularly they're not there. I don't consider that real growth. I consider that an accounting trick. The law of majority is reform. Why isn't Judaism going by the law of the Jewish majority? Okay. So if we go by the, by the law of majority rules, we should all become Chinese. You know, they are the majority in the world, right? 
So we should all uh, do whatever Chinese people do. That's not, that's not what it means, majority rules. It doesn't mean that you go take a poll in the street. And it's a law for, 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 uh, for courts. It's a law for rabbinical courts. If you have a court and the question comes up, so you take account of the heads, and you don't go by who's the greater scholar or the lesser scholar, you just go by the numbers, majority rules. But it doesn't mean that you, that you go take a vote and say, well, do we keep Shabbos or not? Let's take a vote among the Jews. That's not what it means. It just, you know. Switching gears now, talking about Reform Judaism, they say they have autonomy. What does that mean, autonomy? Autonomy means that they, what they, the Reform idea of autonomy is that, you know, I think, I think they say that the Ten Commandments are really the ten suggestions. And that you could, you know, these are suggestions, you could choose to do what you want or not. Uh, Emil Hirsch actually, in the book, uh, equated autonomy with free will, which is really not the same thing at all. Free will means that a person has the choice, the ability to make a choice between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. Autonomy means that you have no obligation to do anything. You can do whatever you like. And really, there's no... That is a very big problem for young people, especially in the reform movement, that they cannot understand what is the justification for picking and choosing among commandments. If it's a commandment, then you should do it. If it's not a commandment, then you don't do it. So why... What does this mean, autonomy? Autonomy basically is a nice word which says, do whatever you like. And I think I read from one of the other uh, reform rabbis, I forgot which one it is. If you mention some of the names, I'd remember that he says that uh, Schindler, I think, said this, that, uh, that uh, autonomy was meant for people to pick and choose what they like. Unfortunately, most people chose nothing. Okay, previously Rabbi Shulweis said that the books of Mordechai Kaplan were burned. So I asked him, do the Orthodox really burn books? The, the, no, nobody burns books. What they do is they ban books. Now, a banned book means that there's a statement that's made by the rabbi saying that the ideas in this book are antithetical to the ideas of the Torah. That's what they're saying. So if you're a person who follows the Torah and believes in the Torah and lives by the Torah, then it's important for you to know that this book is not for you. They didn't take it out and burn it. They didn't. There was a Fahrenheit 451 or whatever. They didn't. You know, they didn't take it out and burn it. They're just saying that this book should not be in a Jewish home, and I think that's they're justified in saying that. Now, if people want to go read it anyway because they're curious and they and they're forewarned and they feel that they can handle it, yeah, I'm not going to say that they're going to go to hell for doing that, but I think that, I think that the rabbis are perfectly just, justified and issuing caveats to the community. People could have done it. The same people throw rocks could burn books. But nobody said you should burn books. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, there are people, people do whatever they like. I heard from someone that it was very difficult to transmit orthodoxy in America with the rabbis who came from Europe. So I asked him about that. I, th- I think that the, 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 the generation, the post-Holocaust generation, did have problems communicating with the younger generation. They came from a different culture, different background. Uh, the problems were, I think, greater in the yeshivas, where, uh, where 
teachers, the rebbeim, were people that really didn't relate to American boys. They didn't understand them. They didn't know what baseball was. They just didn't didn't relate to them. So that was you know, and they had um, different ideas. So uh, so there were problems. But you know that has changed a lot. Today today, um, you know the parents and the children are basically. Uh, more homogenized cu- culturally, the teachers they're more innovative, more creative. They use all kinds of visual aids and uh, and you know um, uh, you know the tapes and music and it's you know, there those problems I think don't really exist anymore. There are other kinds of problems, but yeah, those problems. There were people coming from Europe. They were totally different, but they did, they still did well. Most of their children were fine. We turn now to the subject of women, and I ask him about the bat mitzvah ceremony. Why or why not? It's not practiced. Uh, first of all, you know, the bat mitzvah is becoming more and more popular in the uh, Orthodox world. But, of course, you know, not in the, in the shul. It's, in, it's usually, they'll you know, make a party for the girl at home, and they'll invite the friends, invite the family. Um, uh, my brother took his daughter to Israel for her bat mitzvah, took her, just him and his wife and, uh, and, and the girl, they all went to Israel and, you know, so they, it's becoming more and more common. Nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't so, uh, it wasn't so common in earlier times and maybe today because, uh, you know, because women are more aware, so there should be some kind of celebration. Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't we celebrate a girl coming of age and, and entering the covenant of mitzvah, of commandments, of mitzvahs. It's a good thing. So, uh, so it's becoming more and more common. But as far as, you know, coming into the shul and, and coming, getting aliyah, coming to the Torah, we don't do that. Is this now coming from the, I guess it was a Reconstructionist that invented, you know, Mordecai Kaplan invented the bat mitzvah. Really? And so is this something that you think, because I know the non-Orthodox are going to say, look, we're influencing the Orthodox. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think. I think there's nothing in orthodoxy. You know, you're influ- you know, The question of influencing the orthodox to accept certain of the ideological uh, positions of the non-orthodox that doesn't happen. Bat mitzvah is a perfectly innocent, harmless, good celebration. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just something that wasn't commonly done. So now that we're doing it, does that come because it's more, more prevalent in the non-Orthodox world? It may have filtered through the modern Orthodox. I don't know. It could have been, but you know, it's not such a terrible thing. What if, what, what if the, what if the uh, uh, non-Orthodox would decide that they're going to make a, a very strong campaign of, of Bikur Cholim, visit the sick, every person has to visit the person in the hospital every week. And, and they do it, and it's great, and it works well. And the Orthodox decide, hey, you know, that's a good idea, let's do it too. Would that be considered that the non-Orthodox are influencing the Orthodox? I mean, it's a good thing. And it, it's perfectly within the realm of the Torah. So if you come up with some kind of a nice uh, you know, uh, practice, which is, which is perfectly endorsed by the Torah, so by all means. How about rabbis? Will women ever be Orthodox rabbis? 
A, a woman cannot be a rabbi. Um, you're talking about women rabbis in the sense of being halachic decisors or in the sense of being congregational leaders? Congregational leaders. Congregational right? leaders. So the problem with a woman being a, a, you know, a, a rabbi is a problem of modesty. That, you know, it's not proper for a woman to be the rabbi. Now, there, there's a story in, 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 the, in the Gemara of Bruria, the famous Bruria, the wife of Rabbi Meir, who was a brilliant, brilliant scholar and, and knew more Torah than most of the people in her time. And she taught the students. She said, you know, she gave them lectures. And she sat behind the screen. She didn't sit face to face with the students. She sat behind the screen and she spoke, and they only heard her voice. So there, there are issues, serious issues of modesty when you're, and of course it's not immodest to talk to a woman, but in, in the context of when you're praying or when you're studying Torah, then you're supposed to not have your mind on women. And even if the woman is brilliant, she's still a woman, so this is not what you're supposed to be doing. So it's, it would be impossible for a woman to be the rabbi of an Orthodox congregation. Well, she'll sit upstairs and yell down, tell them, you know, give this guy the Aliyah, give that guy the Aliyah. But it's just not something that can happen. This is the way people are, you know. Why do we make believe that it's not so? You know, you come, when you're, you're sitting in shul and there are women around you, you will look at them and you will, uh, you know, evaluate them. Are they looking good, you know? Are they dressed properly? Are they looking attractive? And what does the perfume smell like? And, you know, this is not what belongs in a shul. That's what, that's what the halacha says. You know, you want to go, you know, either in the home or in the street or in the business, but, it, but the shul is a place for holiness, a place where a person is supposed to commune with God, and that is not what should be going on in people's minds. And it does. The rabbi gets up to give a sermon, you know, you know what's going through the minds of all the people, especially if she's good looking? How do you know? So this is not, this is not what, what we should be doing. What is the term chosen people, being God's chosen people? What does that mean exactly? Does it mean we have certain privileges? I mean, other people will think that the chosen people is arrogant and elitist. It's not. It's not. It, it's the most, it, more than anything else, the chosen people is a very heavy responsibility. It's a mission that we have a covenant with God and we are his ambassadors, so to speak, to the world. And we've been chosen to be role models and to live uh, at a higher standard in the sense that we are required to live holy lives. Not just good lives, holy lives. Am Kadosh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That is our responsibility. And it's a very heavy and difficult responsibility for people to do. And uh, there is a certain, um, you know, honor that comes with being, being the chosen people, but that's not really its, it's, it's greatest. If, if a person is, there's a concept in, in the Torah that you can do a lot, you can do a little, as long as your heart is with God. Now, a person who has, uh, who, who lives a proper life can, is, 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 is good. And a person who, uh, who, li- who has a large responsibility does not fulfill it. 
is in a worse position than the other person. The other person has done what's required of him. And this person may have done a lot, but he's greater requirement. So it's really, it's really, the idea of the chosen people is really a heavy burden that's placed on, on, on the Jewish people. It is, not, um, it is not meant to say that we are better than you. But getting back to the other issue, the chosen people is really saying that there is a covenant. And that's the heart of Judaism. The heart of Judaism is the covenant between God and the Jewish people. The whole Torah is the covenants. One, the covenant at Sinai, the covenant at, uh, in Moab, the covenant when they came to Israel, the covenant of God and the patriarchs. The Torah is a series of covenants that were made between God and the Jewish people, and that is the heart of Judaism. So the people that deny the divine origin of the Torah, the people say that the Torah is a myth that was thought up in the imagination of our uh, creative ancestors, then what is the chosen people doing in there? You know? But if you really believe in the covenant, then you have no problem with it. It seems like one of the big differences between Judaism and Christianity is the discussion of the afterlife. Is there an afterlife in Judaism? The idea of the afterlife is not really spelled out explicitly in, in the Torah. It does not well, There are allusions to it, but it does not dwell on it at length. The Torah dwells on the responsibilities. It doesn't dwell on the rewards. The Torah never gets, goes into... Um, well, the Torah goes into the rewards of, for the nation, that if you follow uh, the, the requirements of the Torah, you will have peace and you will have prosperity. But the idea of the individual reward, Torah does not get into that too much. And the idea of the afterlife really is axiomatic in Judaism because Judaism is based on the idea of a neshama, the idea of a soul. That a person is not just a, a body, is not just a, an organism. A person has a soul, which is a divine spark, which is part of God, so to speak, and which yearns to be reunited with God. And the soul is indestructible. And I think that this, even the Greek philosophers, through their you know, rational thinking, reach the same conclusion that the person has a soul and that it's indestructible. So if a person has a soul and it's indestructible, then after he dies, what happens to the soul? So the soul obviously goes to another place. And at that place, it, it's, it's, it's in, it's in, has its connection with God in a stronger way than it has a connection with God when it's in this world and connected to a body. So that is what Olam Abba is. That is what it is. Olam Abba is not like you know, the afterlife in the Muslim sense that you're going to go there and you're going to get you know, this and you're going to get that. We don't understand what the afterlife is because no, we don't have a concept of, of, of what a world of souls is like. So this is not something that the Torah is going to uh, dwell on. And even the Talmud that speaks about it, it doesn't really describe what it is because nobody knows. And we don't have a tradition telling us that we just know that uh, we, just, we have metaphors. And the metaphors are all this-worldly metaphors. 
but they're obviously only metaphors. You're going to be sitting at a golden table with golden legs. Does that mean that to be a golden table with golden legs? It's a metaphor for something which we cannot understand right now. But the idea of an afterlife is not something which was, which was developed by the Catholics. It's not something that's created later. It's something which goes to the very heart of what a person is. If a person is a soul, if a person is a, a part, as part of God, then of course there's an afterlife. And of course there's reward in the afterlife. Of course there is enjoyment and the pleasure and the exhilaration and the ecstasy of being back with God. So the Torah doesn't, doesn't really need to go into this. I now have a few questions that fall into the category of biblical criticism, which is a way of looking at the Torah historically and usually undermines the divine nature of the Torah. Parts of, the, of Deuteronomy are written as if Moses is speaking in the third person. You know, uh, Moses addressed the people. If Moses wrote it, wouldn't he say, and then I addressed the people? These, you know, some people will, 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 uh, will look at, at the language of, of Deuteronomy and say, uh, you know, that um, since Moses is speaking, so why does it say Moses spoke? I don't think that's an issue. I think that is the style in which it was written. It was prophetic. It wasn't his own creative work. It, the, only, the difference between Deuteronomy and the other four books of the Torah are that the other four books were dictated, so to speak. They were the the Shechina Medaberes Metagrono. That means that the, the, the God was speaking through the, through the, the throat, through the voice box of, 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 of Moshe. So, so the words are exactly God's words. In, in Deuteronomy, Moshe is, is transmitting a prophecy that he received to God, but he formulates it in his own words. But it's still prophecy. So the form of it is not written as if it's his own, his own work, his own individual creation. It is a prophecy from God. So it's written in this form. I don't, it's, a, it's a literary form. I don't think there's any kind of a problem with it. They do raise the issue that at the end of the book it says that, um, uh, that, that Moses died, the last eight verses. So the Talmud speaks about this. Who wrote this? You know, how could he say that he died if he's still alive and writing it? So this is a little bit of a simplistic question because it's not a, as these great German scholars in the 19th century discovered, aha, what do you mean he says he died? So that means, he's, that means <laughs> how could he write something like that? I mean, what do you think our ancestors for 2,000 years were stupid? I mean, you think that they didn't realize this? This is your fabulous discovery? So the Talmud speaks about this, and the Talmud says that either these verses were written by Yeshua, by Joshua, and therefore they have a different status from the rest of the Torah, or they were written by, by Moshe, but God told Moshe to write it, and he wrote it in, uh, with tears. That's what, the, that's what the Talmud says in Bava Basra. Okay, so this is our tradition, but either way, my, my, you know, we, we, the Torah itself says that Moshe wrote the whole Torah. Did Moshe get the Torah all out? Because if he would have known the future, he would have known not to hit the rock, and he would have been able to go to Israel. <laughs> no, well, no. He, Moshe went up to, uh, up to heaven, 
and which doesn't mean that uh, he took a plane up somewhere. It's a spiritual thing. He went up to the mountain, and he sort of went into a different dimension, which is called heaven. And God taught him the Torah, which is the rules of the Torah. He taught him the, the, the law. But, and he came down with the Ten Commandments, and, and which he gave to them immediately. And through the whole period of the 40 years in the desert, he taught the people little by little different, part, different laws that he had learned. And God told them, okay, now teach them about inheritance. Now teach them about this. Now teach them about that. And this is what he did over a longer period of time. And while this was happening, there were different things that were happening, the thing with the rock and all these different things. And, and he wrote them down. So the entire Torah as we have it did not come down from Sinai. The entire Torah as we have it was composed over the span of the 40 years that the Jews were in the desert, and they were all prophecy. What Moses learned, what Moshe learned when he went up to Har Sinai, he learned the law. Not only the law that's written in, in, the, in the Torah itself, but all the details and the elaborations that are, that, that are the foundation of the Talmud, the oral law. Oh, so he was writing the history kind of of what the people were doing. He was writing well, what God told him to write. So when it says, and then... then Something happened, that happened at that time, and he wrote it down. This, this was composed all the way... You know, the last piece he wrote when they were on the doorstep of Israel. There was no complete Torah until the end. There's no complete Torah scroll the way we have it until they were just about ready to go into Israel, Canaan. So he was, what was he writing on? Do we know that? What he was writing on? Maybe he had a pad, maybe he had a laptop. <laughs> he was writing some kind of, I don't know, they used papyrus in, in Egypt. He was writing on, uh, I mean, the Torah is written on, 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 uh, on parchment, which is made from the, uh, from the skins of animals. So maybe, I mean, I'm sure the final Torah that, that he wrote that was put into the, uh, into, the, um, into the ark was a kosher Torah that was written on proper parchment. Did he, did he have drafts for himself before he put it down? I don't know, maybe he did. When it says Moses was the most humble prophet, yes. that doesn't sound like a humble man would say that. <laughs> It says that Moses was, most, was the most humble person that ever lived. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses did not have a proper uh, you know, understanding of who he was and what he was. He knew that he was speaking directly to God, which is something which nobody ever, else had ever done. So he knew that he must have been at a very high level. So, the humility doesn't mean that he had a lower opinion of himself than what he really was. Humility is something else completely. Humility means that you do not have an inflated opinion of yourself. People that, are, that, are, that know who they are exactly and do not think that they are one drop more than they really are, that's what a humble person is. A person who's arrogant is inflated. He thinks that he's who knows what, he's like a pin and... That's the end of that. Uh, why it seems to be a little bit of a paradox that that Moshe was the most humble person when he was also the greatest person. But I think in a way it's the opposite. It's not a paradox. It's actually very much connected. 
a person's humility means that a person recognizes his own shortcomings. He doesn't think that he's more than he is. He knows that he knows that that there's so much more that he's not. Now, as a person's horizons expand, as a person learns more, as a person grows, as a person becomes greater, then, then the whole world opens up for him and he has a much greater understanding of what there is. A child, a teenager, thinks that he knows everything, right? But as he gets older and he learns more, he realizes how much he does not know. And that's, that's, a, 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 that's a function of his knowledge and of his growth. Moshe, who was the greatest person that ever lived, who had the greatest uh, concepts of godliness, who was, who's, who's, whose horizons were broader than, than the horizons of anyone else that ever lived, Moshe knew in himself that he was far, far, far from what a person could be. And therefore, he was humble. Other people who would not have that type of idea maybe would think, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm pretty. So therefore, it's, it's a direct result. Of course, Moshe was so great. That's why he was so humble. And you know, you do find in life that, good, that the truly great people are humble. You do find that. Because the greater they are, the more they realize how little they know and the more humble they are. All right, I hope you're enjoying these Why Judaism interviews. If you are, then you should click subscribe so you'll be notified when new volumes get uploaded. And if you're looking for some Jewish fun, Jewish games, head on over to Hazaka.com. That's H-A-Z-A-K-A-H. Hazaka.com, Jewish games that feed the brain. Thanks for listening.